here we are. You guys made it. The few, the proud, enduring to the last GCF uh, of the semester. Um, I, uh, I'm excited. Break is always interesting because uh, we leave for a long time here. Who's ta- is anybody taking winter classes here? A few of you. Okay. You super students. Um, the rest of you get a nice long break, um, and we hope you guys are rested. You come back ready to go because the spring semester um, is really where we transition to a lot of uh, training and equipping. We have our men's and women's retreat, which are coming up in the spring semester, um, which we're really looking forward to. Uh, but right now, we are preparing with uh, the rest of the world, it feels like, for winter break. And to be honest, this is really uh, where we are in the book of Romans is really a great place to stop for the semester. We've been going through Romans since the beginning of this year, and for some time now, uh, Paul has been been speaking to us on what it means to be saved, on what it is to be a Christian, and how we live as a result. And we're kind of reaching the intermission um, of this book. My wife and I went to Sound of Music last Friday night, um, and there's this big crescendo, the, the, the uh, Climb Every Mountain song was right before intermission, and we were literally in the front row. And this like uh, lady who is this professional opera singer was just belting it at the top of her lungs. It was just like this like moment of splendor, and then this this break. Um, and so we're at that moment of splendor. We're at that crescendo um, in the book of Romans. Uh, and tonight it's a passage that uh, should excite us. It should stir our hearts to worship. It should uh, actually fill us with something which is sustainable throughout the break so we can actually rest in a gospel-centered way um, while we're away. And actually what Paul is discussing tonight is a theme which is echoed a lot of ways in our culture today. Paul's going to talk about hope. He's going to talk about glory. He's going to talk a lot about love. Um, And our culture understands, or at least has, a narrative of love. What are we looking for in love? What does love do? What does love provide. And tonight, Paul is going to discuss the endurance which love gives us and the motivation which love brings us. Um, And this is almost synonymous, almost word for word with what culture says love does, right? If we can only find our one true love, our lives will make sense. If we can only find that one true love, we'll be able to endure anything. If we can only find that one true love, whether it's an object, whether it's an experience, whether it's a person, we will find a bulletproof way of life where nothing can hurt us, nothing can stop us because we have that beloved. And our culture romanticizes this to such an extent where we see it on TV, we read about it in books, we go watch it at the movies. And, and in one sense, it's because our hearts long for this love. But this is where the narrative differs from what culture says about love and what Paul says about love. See, each group wants a love that changes lives. But we see that things are different, right? We all know that the love which we've maybe experienced, the love which maybe we've longed for, the love which maybe we even idolized and attached our hope to, it fails us. It gets banged up, it gets broken, it gets ditched. Oftentimes we find the thing we love so deeply and uh, you want something new. My wife and I were talking about Christmas gifts today. In the last like three years of Christmas gifts, I'm a very trendy person in terms of what I desire, not in terms of clothing, um, but like I'll want something, I'll research and be like, Sarah, if I just had this, and like, I couldn't tell her the last three things she got me for Christmas, but it was all like, I needed this thing. Um, and we know that. The, our heart knows that. Uh, and, and I realized this as last week I confessed something embarrassing that I searched for online. This week, I continued that trend. I wanted to end the semester on a high note. I researched uh, The Bachelor, like the TV show, okay? Um, And so, it's in my Google search history. Uh, It's worse than a lot of things I could have looked for. Um, But I wanted to look at it, because as I was writing this, uh, I remember in high school, and even in college, and even my wife and her friend still, I don't, I did, there are shows my wife watches when she's at home that I don't know she watches until it comes up in conversation, and The Bachelorette was one of those. Um, But I heard girls specifically in high school talking about this, and they were just like, they idolized. They wanted to be treated like these women were being treated um, in the show. They wanted to be chosen. They wanted to get that rose. There was this like emotional heartthrob appeal to this process, which I don't understand it because nothing says I love you like, ah, you're the last one left. Um, But that's what the show does. Yet some reason we think it's this great thing. Um, So in my research, uh, 
The Bachelor has existed for 19 seasons. Um, has anybody watched all 19? Just tell me no. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so pop quiz. Of those 19, how many of those 19 resulted in proposals, do you think? Wikipedia said 12 of the 19. <laughs> okay, we can debate, we can debate semantics later. Um, some of them got married still, but they didn't end the show with a proposal. But here's the thing, 12 proposals as noted on Wikipedia, which is no, a source we all know we can trust. Um, and of that 12 that proposed at the end, fewer of them actually got married. And of the ones that got married, guess how many are still married? One. One. Wait, are you just talking The Bachelor? Or I'm just talking The Bachelor, okay. The Bachelorette, okay, okay. Sorry if that, <laughs> Bachelorette, I won't touch that idol, okay? Um, but in The Bachelor, here's this, this, this thing which is pulling in so many people of what affection is, of what we desire. If we could just get that rose, if we could have that man, if we could be in that spotlight. And only one of those love stories even had or still has we won't count it done yet, uh, has a happy ending. Our world might know love. It might have a picture of love. It might even be able to taste love, but it's only an impermanent love. It's a broken love. We know it as a glimmer, not as a beam. But tonight, Paul is going to inform us of a greater love, a love which is permanent, a love which is lasting, a love which endures, a love which all other loves that the world writes about, puts on screens, imagines, that dances around in our own mind. It's only a shadow of this love, only a shaving of the icon of our love. And this is what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see that the hope of a believer is made bulletproof by the plan of God and by the love of God. Our hope as a believer is made bulletproof uh, it cannot be decayed. It cannot go away. It will not fail by two things, the plan of God and the love of God. So let's pray uh, and we will continue. Lord, we pray uh, that you press on our hopes tonight. Um, we have many things in our hearts right now, just where we are in the station of life and at this date in the calendar, we're hoping for um, an amazing ability to retain what we've tried to learn this semester as we prepare for finals. We're hopeful for the reunion with family. We're hopeful for Christmas and tradition and food and break and rest. But God, I pray that as we look at your word in Romans 8, that our hopes in this world are tied to the hopes that are outside of this world. I pray we are a people typified um, by a constant ability to remember your plan and a constant awareness of your great love. I pray this in your name. Amen. So for those of us who are here with us last week, Paul painted this picture um, of the future hope for a believer, a, a life in the new heavens and in the new earth, a recreation where God is bringing his people, his church, back to the garden, back to a world where you have a perfect fellowship with God, a perfect relationship with those around you, and all the side effects of sin, all the bad things, all the evil, all those things that, which burden us today are completely removed. But he ended with this. In verse 25 of chapter 8, he says, But if we hope for what we do not see, which is all of us, none of us live in that yet. Our lives might be good, but they're not as good as they will be. But he says this, We wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. We have been saved. We have been redeemed. We have been given much. We have been given the good life now, but we are not fully there. Our greater life is yet to come. Uh, the solution to all we hope for is still in the future. And just this week, I was, I was talking to Owen, um, and I was teaching him to, to wait, to be long-suffering with his sister. And I said, Owen, you need to be patient. And I realized Owen doesn't know what patient, patience is. I was like, do I really know what patience is? What do I tell my son patience is? And so we're sitting in the van, and I'm like, Owen, well, patience is, is waiting with contentment. Owen doesn't know what contentment is. Um, so I'm like, I'm like, in the simplest things I can, I said, patience is when we wait happily. We wait with a happy heart. And really, that's all Paul is calling us to do. As we see this tension between these two worlds, Paul is calling us to wait with a happy heart. But at the same time, Paul's not disillusioned. 
Paul is not someone who lives in a fantasy land. I've said it before, I'll say it again a thousand times. The only system of understanding which makes sense of both the good and the bad in this world, the things we hope for, the things we long for, and the things that hurt us is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it was given to us by the God who created this world. And it's the only thing which will then make sense of this world. And we see this tension where Paul is calling us to wait patiently, to wait with happiness, to wait with contentment. But we also see that tension immediately after he tells us to wait in verse 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Interceding is, is offering petitions for us. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we are saved, Paul talked about this a couple chapters ago, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And far from, the Holy Spirit, far from being something mysterious and sensational that we should be afraid of or uh, we should elevate above God and Je the Father and Jesus, the Holy Spirit is actually, the Bible's really clear on what the Holy Spirit does for us. Um, it's, it, Paul here says um, what the Holy Spirit is doing for us. And when we take the what the rest of Scripture says, the Holy Spirit is just the God-word beacon of the Christian soul. It's the thing inside of us which is pulling our hearts back to God. It's like a magnet charged to be drawn to God himself. And that's because on this earth, we will experience where because we still live in a sinful world, because we still have a flesh which gets hurt, a flesh which is capable of longing for things which are hard, we will still, I don't know if this is going to shock you, you will still desire sinful things. You will still grow faint-hearted in your efforts to believe. You will go through dry seasons where it feels like your worship is insincere. You will still go through things which are contrary to the nature that God has made true for you. And in those moments, that's when the Holy Spirit picks up. The Holy Spirit <laughs> comes to us where we are weak. We saw him talk about this two weeks ago in Romans 8.15, where he says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So in Romans 8.15, he says it's the Holy Spirit that desires God because you left on yourself, you're going to do it poorly. But if I give you the Holy Spirit, you will desire God more because he desires me. And he's been given to you. And here we see that the Holy Spirit, along with that crying out, Abba, Father, along with that desiring Jesus, he uses this word, of groaning on our behalf. We don't know how to pray. Man, that's, that's, the older I get, the more I realize I don't know how to pray. <laughs> I don't know what I should be praying for. I don't know the best way to say it. I try as hard as I can. I was on my way here tonight, and I'm like, God, I don't know what to pray before I preach. I just know I need your help. And here the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, and it's groaning because it understands the pull of sin. It's groaning because it understands our weakness and it's laboring along with us. It's this co-union with the Holy Spirit where it is laboring for our good and we are laboring for our good. And as I read this, I found this really interesting. If we zoom back out and look at two of the verses we looked at last week, this is what we see. Uh, let's look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 8. Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And now skip forward to verse 26, and we see this again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. Isn't that interesting? Creation groans believers groan, and the Holy Spirit groans with an eagerness, a deep longing for a life where sin lies dead and removed forever. For a life where we have uninterrupted access to God, a perfect relationship restored, it is groaning along with us. Even God himself is longing for this day 
when a relationship is restored between him and his people. And while it's groaning, while it's laboring, the, the Holy Spirit's job isn't to give you like vain attaboys. It's not to pat your back and tell you everything's going to be okay, even though it has no control over what's going on. The Holy Spirit actually does something unique to encourage us. How do you think, I'll ask you this question. Don't cheat and look at the text. Um, how do you think the Holy Spirit can best encourage you? When the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf, when it's helping you pray, when you don't know what to pray, when you don't know what's going on, when you feel out of control, when you feel temptation creeping in, when you feel stressed, when you feel weak, when you feel lonely, when you feel distraught, what do you think the best way is for the Holy Spirit to encourage you? It points us to the plan of God. That's what happens in this text. Look back at Romans 8, 27. And he, that's God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And what is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. According to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is speaking to God on our behalf according to the will of God. And this is exactly what we saw the Holy Spirit would do when Jesus said that. What does Jesus say the Holy Spirit came to do? John 16, verses 13 through 14. He says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. One of the first ways you will receive comfort when things are hard, one of the best ways you will receive aid when we are prone to sin is to be reminded of the will of God, namely his plan for us. What is God's plan and purpose in this mess? This is the first thing we see tonight. This is the plan of God. And I want us to pay attention to where Paul is going here because when, when we experience the pain of this world and the failings of this world and the sufferings of our own bodies, knowing why, that question why, equips us to live better in the now. You see, the gospel pulls the why out of everything we do. Culture can't answer that. Uh, sociology can't answer that. Psychology can't answer that. The purpose of why we live is found in the gospel, and that purpose gives us a hope. Paul talks about this purpose, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's a really big text with a lot of big theological words in it. But I just want to pause for a second and unpack um, the first part. I want to look at Romans 8.28. Because what we have here in Romans 8.28 is a statement. All things work together for good who are called according to his purpose. And then verses 29 through 30, we have an explanation of what he means by that. So a statement and an explanation. And Paul's statement here in Romans 8.28 is often misunderstood. How many people have heard Romans 8.28 uh, prior to what I just read? The majority of you. God works all things together for good of those who are called according to his purpose. Um, but look back at it, and I want you to note the qualifiers. Note what Paul is saying here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You see, this verse doesn't promote karma. Good things happen to good people. If you're a good person, ultimately good will come back to you. You get out what you put in. This, this verse doesn't promote blind optimism, where we sit and we say, man, there are bad things in this world, but everything works out for good if you give it time. Everything will ultimately make amends on its own. You see, this text is saying um, that for those who are saved, all things work together for good by the gracious hand of God. You see, twice we see the scope narrowed. First, it says, for those who love God. And then secondly, it says, those, are called, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want you to hear this, because this is very important. Romans 8.28 
the promise of God working all things for good isn't for all people. It's for God's people. We will experience tribulation here on earth. We will experience loss, hardship, pain, strife, anxiety, suffering. But I want you to hear, all this is true, but do you hear what was just said? That means the ultimate economy, most everything which happens in this world is for the good of Christians. Think about the current events going on right now. For the good. You see, we are not the underdogs. Vegas might not favor us, but the one who controls the world does. God will work all things for good for those who are Christian. And so just yesterday, I submitted my last final of my last class um, in seminary. It was Greek. I put it off. It was Greek too. I put it off for four years, not wanting to take it, and I took it. So let me now share with you the secret of Greek and how Greek changes things, okay? Um, when Paul says all things, if you look at the original Greek here, the word literally means all things. That's what a seminary education gets you. All things means all things. That means God doesn't work some things. God doesn't just work the good things. God doesn't just work the big things. God works all things for the good of the believer. Now, most of you in here probably consider yourself a believer. Why are we not cheering at this? Why are we not standing up and pumping our fists saying, yes, this is for me. It's because oftentimes we tend to impose our own definition on what good means. Because each and every one of us has experienced ungood things. We've experienced sorrow, suffering, and pain. So what does Paul mean when he says, God is working all things for your good? How does Paul use that word? Well, we're going to see. He's going to give us his definition of good in Romans 8, 29 through 30. And this is what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. People have often called this passage, Romans 29 and 30, the golden chain of of salvation. It's kind of this cascading, uh, foreknowing, predestining, <laughs> calling, justifying, glorifying um, that describes to us how we're saved. What went into this thing which produced our salvation. And while it could be true that this does kind of, is a really succinct capsule of how we're saved, um, I don't think that's really why Paul wrote it. Paul wasn't writing Romans 8 here, and he's like, I want to tell people exactly how they're saved. What Paul wants to do is he, want to he wants to tell you how your salvation answers the question of what's good. Here he says, all things work together for good. Now stop, let me tell you about your salvation. Let me tell you what God did in your life. And he unpacks it here. And in, in, in much brevity, there's been many words and sermons and series spilled over these two verses. And in much brevity, um, I'm going to give us three ways which we can be encouraged by the salvation that Paul just defined here. And really, it's because the salvation encom encompasses the past, the present, and the future. Number one, God's salvation was his own decision prior to us being born. Paul says that God foreknew and predestined his people. That means that the basis of God's church, the basis of God's salvation, is because God wanted to have a relationship with his people. And God, the holy God, the creator God, the all-powerful God, will get what he wants. He, he made this relationship secure because he desired it. God was going to save his people. God was going to have his people. You've heard this line before. Um, uh, if, if God only died for me, he still would have done it. In one sense, I'm like, yeah, I guess that could be true. 
But God always wanted a people. And God's not limited. He's God. If God wants a people, he's going to get a people. God was going to not just get them. He was not just going to save them. He was not just going to purchase them. He was not just going to love them, but he was going to be with them forever. And uh, theologians have often called this the covenant of redemption, where before God actually created, he knew that he was going to have a people. And he was going to get that. So how is this encouraging? This is encouraging in our life. Because if God foresaw you and your salvation, he certainly foresaw the circumstances you're living in. If God, before the foundations of the world, which is the language Paul uses in Ephesians 4, looked through history, saw you, saved you, how do we think he's unconcerned with the rest of the things in our lives? Don't we know then if God has planned the hardest of making dead hearts new, don't we then trust that God is seeking for our good in the lesser things? You see, this is, this is encouragement from eternity past. If God is a God who secures and loves prior to us even being born, he's a God who is God even in these circumstances. We're also encouraged in the now. This is encouragement number two. He says, we were saved, and so this chain goes, we were foreknown, and then he predestined us, and then we are now, he predestined us so that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. So we may be conformed to the image of Christ. That means that in everything you encounter in your life, from the good, the bad, the ugly, the hard, the easy, the fun, the sad, the depressing, all of that happens so that if you are God's people so that you will be changed more and more into the image of Christ. Okay, I want you to think about that. If God in eternity past set forth a plan to save you, then that means from that moment on everything you encounter is meant to conform you more and more into Christ. See, this is something where oftentimes we could, people see this verse and they, they have somebody grieving who comes to them and they're like, let me tell you why this is good in explicit detail. <laughs> and we start making things up as to why this event is good. But the beauty of this is that our counsel can be really broad, really true, and really helpful. Sarah and I have gone through some hard stuff in the last three months. And I remember sitting on the couch with my wife, um, uh, she was crying, and I said, Sarah, I don't know what God's trying to do in this, but I know he's trying to shape us into Christ. I know we're encountering trial so that we can understand what Christ went through. I know we're having to process this in the same way Jesus processed this. I know we're having to endure suffering as Jesus suffered. I know that we are tested, tried, and we experience pain, and we learn to proceed as Jesus himself proceeded in this fallen world, yet remained faithful, obedient, and loving towards God in all things. I know that the broken relationships you will experience, the disheartened feelings you will have, the depression that sets in, the hardship you will face, it happens so that you may act more and more like Christ because that's your ultimate good. Now what does that mean? How is being shaped like Christ your ultimate good? Paul goes there. This is the future, um, the future encouragement. Romans 8, 29. Um, excuse me, Romans 8, 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, or no, I do want to go to verse 29. Sorry. Uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why are we conformed to Christ? We're conformed to Christ because Christ was the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? doesn't mean that Christ was the firstborn among many brothers. We're conformed to Christ 
Because those who are conformed with Christ, those who are like Christ, those who have been saved by Christ, those whose lives have been identified with, shaped by, molded by, consumed by Christ, will be raised like Christ. You see, if, if, it, if, if Jesus died so that we can be conformed to look like your pastor, that's good in some ways. Hopefully your pastors, myself included, live a life worthy of modeling. But that's not really great. But if our lives are conformed to Christ, and it's Christ who has then been raised from the dead, that's a greater thing. You see, when Christ popped out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, three days after being in the grave, it wasn't an isolated event in human history. It was the foretaste of a greater event which will follow when all of God's people are raised from the dead and brought into the new heavens and the new earth. You see, Jesus was the firstborn of a new type of person. Sure, Lazarus, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but go dig up Lazarus's grave. His bones are there. <laughs> go to Jesus' grave. His bones aren't there. And for those who are being conformed to Christ we're going to be conformed to a world of glory. And that means that each thing you process in your day-to-day -day life in a Christ-like manner is a way where we inch closer to that glory. We become closer and closer to that day where our bodies will be raised with Christ. You see, the joy of now is that we can have resurrected living. We can make resurrected choices. We can make God-centered lives in a pre-resurrection body. And everything we encounter goes to that. And that's the final encouragement, is that we will be glorified, Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, the good of the believer is not that you've been predestined. The good of the believer is not that God conforms. The good of the believer is not that God justifies. The good of the believer is that all these things are done so that one day we will be glorified with Christ. That means don't get too comfortable here on this earth because God is calling us more and more to long for another world. You see, each thing we encounter on this earth is an opportunity to be reminded of the faithful God who covenanted to save his people in eternity past, equipped them to worship and be conformed to him in the present, but will one day glorify them ultimately in the future. You see, past, present, and future, the plan of God's salvation encompasses the whole of your life. It's not something that crept in in the middle, but it's something that all of God for all of eternity has set forth to do. Now, that was a really theologically rich portion of text. It was almost like Tyler was up here reading uh, a theology book of how God did it in eternity, what that means in our sanctification. So we could use words like soteriology and sanctification and eschatology and glorification. But we need to understand that what comes immediately after this, foreknowing, preordaining, justifying, glorifying, what immediately follows is one of the greatest texts of worship in the whole Bible. Paul just like knocks it out of the park. With the, you can't read what Paul is about to say and not be moved to worship in some sort of way. You see, there are many debates, discussions, dissertations, and dialogues over how God saves us. But when we use terms like predestination, salvation, justification, foreknowing, what we're really talking about, what really makes this discussion important and relevant for you is how God loves. When we talk about theology, when we talk about how we're saved, when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about God's love. You see, God didn't save us because he was sitting in heaven, him and Jesus were playing chess, and he's like, I thought of a really cool systematic process of theology by which we will redeem a fallen creation. You see, God set forth his plan of salvation. God saved us not because it was neat. He saved us because he loved us. And that love shapes everything. Ephesians 1.4 says this, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why do we care about how we're saved? How do we draw encouragement from looking at our salvation? Because our salvation isn't a reflection of what you did to merit God's favor. Your salvation is the portrait of the love of which God has loved you. It's a reflection of God's, God himself. You see, to emphasize love without God's love, we all love talking about God's love, but to emphasize that without understanding God's salvation is to generalize what God has made specific. It's to mar what God has made beautifully ornate, but also to oversimplify and to emphasize God's plan of salvation, and to get all caught up in how God saves. But to not understand God's love is to not understand God's will. God's will wasn't to save. God's will was to love. It was to love his people. Salvation enabled the love. This is the second point tonight, the love of God. Um, I played in an alumni basketball tournament earlier this summer, and uh, in case you can't tell, I wasn't a pure shooter. Um, they typically put me in places where I just rubbed up against other men. Um, and uh, that's weird. We should strike that from the record. Uh, but uh, so I'm not a three-point shooter. And I was on the perimeter, as we call it in the game. Um, and I was dribbling, which is what you do when you have the ball. Anyway, uh, the, the, the bench of the team we were playing on was right behind me, and there's a guy on the bench who's like, let him shoot, let him shoot, and he was like heckling me. And so I step back, I square up, I shoot, and by a stroke of God's grace, I nailed it, <laughs> just straight up. And what I did is I turned to the bench, and I was like, what now? <laughs> what follows? These verses we are going to see is Paul's what now? Because Paul goes to great lengths to say that before the foundations of the world, God chose to love you. In this present day, in all this suffering, God is choosing to redeem you. And in the future, God has chosen and God has secured a way for you to be glorified forever. What now? And he says this, what then shall we say to those things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now I want to stop. Romans 8.32 is an atom bomb to our theology. He says, for God who did not even spare his own son for us. That's the gospel. What do we have that's not in the gospel? Nothing. What do we have that's better than the gospel? Nothing. What do we have that's greater than the gospel? Nothing. But did you see what he said? Will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, in some way that we can't understand... The gospel's going to get greater in our lives. Things are going to get better for us than they are right now. We're going to have a deeper appreciation, a better understanding, a greater capacity because God still has, though he has given us his son, he has still not yet given us all things. But he will. And if God has set forth the whole of his abilities all of his power, all of his might, all of his holiness and love by predestining us in eternity, conforming us and justifying us in the present and glorifying us in the future, Paul's question to you is what could possibly stand against you? What could shake your hope? What could interfere with our joy? What can hamper your existence? What influences your life if not for the weight of the gospel? And Paul asks three rhetorical questions to answer his first one. His first question is Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. So Paul says, consider this a court. Or consider this outside of court. Who's going to bring us to court? Who's going to say to you that your lives are spent in vain? That you're wasting your labors and your faith is futile? Who will tell you that your affections for God are off base? Who will tell you that you're living wrong? No one. For it is God who justifies. It is God who makes right. And what do we just read in Romans 8.30? God has already justified us. So even if someone were to bring us into the court of God and put us on trial, God's like, he's already good. He's already taken care of. No one can bring a charge against you because Christ has already done that. We do not fear a wasted life in this world because we've already passed from death to life by the death of Jesus. And that leads us to Paul's next question, Romans 8, 24. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, indeed interceding for us. So here Paul asks, who is it that condemns us? And this is the question you will be asked in more ways by more people than any other question in your life. And it's not going to be by what Paul was perceiving, people coming, other religious people saying that you're believing the wrong religion. It's going to be people who come into your life and say that you failed to find true joy. That you have condemned yourself to a boring, albeit moral and maybe admirable, life of boredom, of missing the point, of being narrow-minded, of being bigoted, of saying that what you've done is you've missed out on the greatest joy by living for the value of yourself. That your life is really a waste, that you've missed out on happiness. Who then will condemn you to such fear and uncertainty? Who will make you doubt your salvation, doubt your satisfaction? No one can. Because Christ was already condemned. All, the most awful thing the world can picture happening to you already happened in Jesus and even worse. So because Christ didn't only bear our cross on the sins or bear our sins on the cross because that would have been enough to just die for our sins. Our debt would have been forgiven. But Jesus broke death. You see, Jesus went on the cross and not only was he condemned in our place, but he promptly, being God, uncondemned himself. You see, Jesus not only removed the burden of eternal futility from our shoulder, not only removed the burden of finding joy in something which is not him, but he gave us freedom and life and now he intercedes for us before God himself speaking on our behalf. No one can condemn you because Christ took our condemnation. No one can shame you because Christ took your shame. No one can say you missed out because Christ already missed out on heaven by dying for you. But being God himself, he is now elevated to the right hand of God. Paul's final question, Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? See, we opened up talking about this desire hardwired in humanity to find a love which endures. And isn't that the question all of us ask? What's going to separate me, stop me, or deter me from finding that love? What can shake your love? What believer will decay your salvation? What will remove God's blessing? Blessing. What will tarnish your hope? What will bring you disappointment? What will crush you. I find this really interesting. When we think about love, when our culture thinks about love, the greatest encouragement is our love for something else. Don't we always see life that way? I love this, therefore that, therefore that works. I love God, therefore that works. And while it's true, we play an active part in loving the things of this world and in loving God, Paul's greatest encouragement isn't about your love for God. It's about God's love for you. This is one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword for as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure for i am certain for i have tasted and i have known that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord can the physical things destroy our hope can famine destroy our hope can tribulation can distress can mudslides can tornadoes can tragedy no. Can the spiritual things, can powers, can forces? No. Can temporal things, can the past affect my salvation? No. Can the future affect my salvation? No. Can made up things affect my salvation? No. Why? Not because you're strong. Man, I wrestled to love the Tennessee Titans, who I willingly decided to like. It's not because you have great resolve. It's not because you won. It's not because you're lovable. But it's because it's God's great plan of salvation to love us first and see us through to the end. Why can nothing separate God's people? Because he's chosen to love them. And nothing can interrupt God's love. You see, our hope isn't that we choose God but that God chose us. He loved us. He saved us. And nothing can separate us from that joy. That means when we encounter anything which threatens our perceived idea of salvation, of happiness, and of belonging, we are more than conquerors. Literally, the word uh, that Paul uses uh, is, is super conquerors. The, the prefix is hooper. Super conquerors. Great conquerors, over conquerors. We've been granted not only security in God's love, but ultimate security. So when we move forward into the unknown, we know what's going to be there. Jesus is going to be there. Salvation is going to be there. And therefore, when we encounter anything, we reflect not only on the salvation God brings, but the love with which God loves us. That's how everything works for your good. You see, in all things, you experience the joy of your salvation until it becomes our forever reality. And that means that everything Paul has discussed in Romans 1 through 8, calls to repentance, calls to holiness, calls to action, calls to faith, cannot be divorced from God's love. For the whole task of the Christian is to better find yourself an object of an unshakable love, is to move deeper into the well of God's love which will never be exhausted. This is the believer's good. This is God's love for the believer. But know this, if Romans 8.28 is only for the believer, that means that if you are not a believer, this world does not work for your good. Though you think you find joy and satisfaction in the simpleties of this earth, you will only find dissatisfaction and judgment. Yet, God is still good to the non-believer. He is still good to this campus of people who have rejected him. And he is good because he's still given them time to repent. Look at Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That, there's a purpose statement. Why is God sovereign? Why is God planning? Why is God allotting? Why is God meddling? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually too far from any of us. For those who do not know God, nothing will work out for your good. But in this moment, God has granted you life because his offer stands. Come and experience the eternal love of God, which is 
all-securing and all-satisfying. And for us in here, this is where we wait. This is where we engage. This is the campus you're going to come back to. This is the world on break you're going to go to. There are people who are God's people who were foreknown, predestined, and called in the same way you were who are not yet worshiping God because He's waiting for those who have already tasted to call them to His joy, to call them to His satisfaction. And so we wait patiently with happiness by evangelizing to a world which is in need of some good. Evangelizing to a people who are lost. We wait by moving towards the swords, the lions, the hate mail, and the titles. Because we know that regardless of what the world can throw at us, we have a good which endures because we have a love which saves. Let's pray. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness, danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.